You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. If the sweatshop shoe fits... Elkington was right to shine a spotlight on businesses' attention deficit on social issues. This failing was illustrated spectacularly when in November 1997, Nike was exposed for using sweatshops in Asia. This bombshell came just five months after Nike had, together with its peers, launched the World Federation of Sporting Goods Industry Code of Conduct. The scandal erupted when a report on labour conditions in one of their contract supplier factories in Vietnam, prepared by Nike's own auditors, Ernst & Young, was leaked to an activist NGO called Track or Corporate Watch by a disgruntled employee. The firestorm of bad publicity that rained down on Nike resulted in, among other things, Nike being sued for violating California's Business and Professionals Code. Partly in response, in 1998, Social Accountability International launched its SA8000 standard, a labour standard focused especially on labour conditions in the supply chain. Social Accountability International is now one of the world's leading social compliance training organisations, having provided training to over 20,000 people, including factory and farm managers, workers, brand compliance officers, auditors, labour inspectors trade union representatives, and other workers' rights advocates. Today, SA8000 certification covers over 2,000 facilities in 64 countries, across 66 industries, and over 1.1 million employees. Perhaps it is not surprising that Nike's supply chain is now one of the most scrutinized in the world. The three main product lines of Nike's brand, footwear, apparel, and equipment, are made by approximately 600 contract factories that employ more than 800,000 workers in 46 countries around the world. In 2005, Nike was the first company in its industry to disclose its factory list. They now claim to visit each factory, on average, 1.77 times per year, while the exact number of visits per individual factory depends on a factory's ratings, its strategic importance, and its performance history. In 2009, they also conducted 33 deeper studies called Management Audit Verifications and 267 Environment Health and Safety Reviews. Another standard that emerged as a result of these social engagement trends of the 1990s was Accountability's AA1000 framework, launched in 1999, as an accountability guideline on social and ethical accounting, auditing and reporting, including stakeholder engagement. Under this umbrella, a number of related standards were spawned, including an assurance standard, a stakeholder engagement standard, purpose and principles, and framework for integration. Former CEO of accountability, Simon Zadig, told me in 2008 that the standards were a response to the tension between intensive and extensive accountability, with the modern corporation being the quintessential example of extreme forms of intensive accountability, in other words, to a very narrowly defined set of stakeholders. 
What's happened in the last decade and a half in the corporate responsibility space, he said, is that the pressure on companies has been to play out an increasingly extensive accountability model. In other words, being forced to take into account a wider set of stakeholder interests. The Rise and Fall of Corporate Governance In many ways, the 1990s were a decade of increasing convergence in responsibility, with not only the social and environmental agendas on the rise, but also the corporate governance movement taking hold. The UK took the lead, establishing a committee on the financial aspects of corporate governance in 1991 under the chairmanship of Sir Adrian Cadbury, then Director of the Bank of England and retired Chairman of Cadbury Schweppes. The committee's report in 1992, the so-called Cadbury Report, including its Code of Best Practice, set the standard for other similar initiatives around the world. One of the first to follow was South Africa's King Committee on Corporate Governance in 1993, which issued its King Report and Code in 1994 under the chairmanship of former High Court judge and director of several companies, Mervyn King. King went further than Cadbury, going beyond the purely financial aspects of corporate governance and incorporating the concept of wider stakeholder accountability. Without a doubt, the different emphases were shaped by the operating context. At the time, London was still one of the great financial capitals of the world, and South Africa was having its first democratic elections. This divergence, which began as a fissure, was to become a canyon when subsequent updates were issued. The Cadbury Report was followed by the Greenbury Report, the Combined Code, the Turnbull Report, the Higgs Review, the Smith Report and the Walker Review, all of which continue to focus mostly on financial and organisational aspects of corporate governance, the structure of boards, audit committees, remuneration committees and so on. Hence issues like sustainability and responsibility have to be inferred through generic clauses on risk and reputation or passing references to environment, health and safety. By contrast, updates to the King Report in 2002 and 2009 increasingly place sustainability and responsibility at the heart of the corporate governance agenda. King 2, for example, included a substantial section on business ethics and an entire chapter on integrated sustainability reporting. King 3 goes even further. As Mervyn King puts it, the philosophy of King 3 revolves around leadership, sustainability and corporate citizenship. Speaking to me in 2010, King emphasised that directors are accountable to the company first, not the shareholders, and a broader set of stakeholders provide a better perspective on what is good for the company in the long term. According to King, and speaking as a former High Court South African judge, this is not inconsistent with corporate law in the US and elsewhere. These contrasting views of corporate governance are all the more insightful considering the accounting scandals that came to characterise the first decade of the 21st century, from the collapse of Enron and WorldCom in the US in 2001, to Parmalat in Europe in 2003, and of course the devastating fallout from the 2008 financial meltdown, including Lehman Brothers and numerous others. America's post-Enron response was the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, over which Mervyn King remains deeply sceptical. 
the rise of shareholder activism. A related trend to corporate governance in the age of management was the rise of socially responsible investment, or SRI. As Steve Leidenberg, author of Corporations and the Public Interest, explains, the history of SRI can be divided into two general periods, the first running from 1970 to the mid-1990s and the second from the mid-1990s to the present. In the first period, SRI was largely a North American phenomenon, starting in the early 1970s, a limited number of SRI unit trusts or mutual funds and money managers began serving retail investors and small institutions. Larger institutional investors then became involved in SRI through the anti-apartheid South Africa disinvestment movement, which began in the 1970s and culminated in the early 1990s. Ultimately, scores of U.S. state and local pension funds, among others, screened billions of dollars in assets, according to companies' labor records and levels of involvement in South Africa. Throughout this period and continuing to today, U.S. religious organizations played a leading role in shareholder activism through the annual filing of hundreds of shareholder resolutions on social and environmental issues. Simultaneously, a number of community development banks, credit unions and revolving loan funds were founded and attracted support from SRI investors. During the second period, SRI developed into a worldwide phenomenon. Starting in the late 1990s, Australia and Japan also developed active markets for SRI unit trusts or mutual funds, and the stock exchanges of South Africa, Israel and Brazil launched SRI indexes to encourage CSR among companies listed in those countries. Since 2000, a number of public and private pension funds in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands and France have also imposed a variety of social and environmental standards in the management of a part or all of their assets. Reflecting the global nature of this expansion, the United Nations became increasingly active in promoting SRI through the UN Environmental Programme's Financial Initiative and the launch in 2006 of the Principles for Responsible Investment. As of 2007, global SRI assets under management were $5 trillion, with $2.7 trillion of that invested in the United States, according to the Social Investment Forum. A 2009 report by Rebecca and Booz and Company predicts that these will reach $26.5 trillion by 2015, over 15% of the global total. A cornucopia of codes. Looking back, we can see that the 1990s were the decade of CSR codes. Not only EMAS, ISO 14001 and SA 8000, but also the Forest Stewardship Council, the Marine Stewardship Council, Green Globe Standard, Corruption Perceptions Index, Fair Trade Standard, Ethical Trading Initiative, Dow Jones Sustainability Index and OSAS 18001, to mention just a few. But all that was just a warm-up act when we look at the last 10 years, during which we have seen codes proliferate in virtually every area of sustainability and responsibility and in all major industry sectors. So much so that in the A to Z of corporate social responsibility, we included over a 100 such codes, guidelines and standards, and that was just a selection of what is out there. 
To illustrate the point, here is a sample of what has been thrust onto corporate agendas just since the year 2000. The Carbon Disclosure Project, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, GRI Sustainability Reporting Guidelines, Kimberley Process to Stop Trade in Conflict Diamonds, Mining and Minerals for Sustainable Development Project, UN Global Compact, UN Millennium Development Goals, Voluntary Principles on Human Rights, FTSE for Good Index, Global Business Coalition on HIV and AIDS, Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, Business Principles for Countering Bribery, Publish What You Pay Campaign, Johannesburg Declaration on Sustainable Development, London Principles for the Finance Sector, AA1000 Assurance Standard, the Equator Principles for the Finance Sector, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, Global Corruption Barometer, UN Convention Against Corruption, UNEP Finance Initiative, UN Norms on Business and Human Rights, World Bank Extractive Industries Review, AA1000 Standard for Stakeholder Engagement, EU Greenhouse Gas Emissions Trading Scheme, Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, ISO 14064 Standard on Greenhouse Gas Accounting and Verification, Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change, Bribe Payers Index, UN Principles for Responsible Investment, Climate-Wise Principles for the Insurance Sector, UNEP Declaration on Climate Change, UN Principles for Responsible Management Education, Prime, the Bali, Poznan and Copenhagen communiques on climate change, and many, many more. No wonder companies are suffering from code fatigue and audit exhaustion. It is the supreme paradox of the age of management. Companies are pressured to standardise their efforts on sustainability and responsibility, while stakeholders and critics, myself included, remain unconvinced that this approach identifies or addresses the root causes of the problems we face. Many of the institutional failures over the past 20 years have, I would argue, been systemic failures of culture rather than bureaucratic failures of management. They have more to do with a prevailing set of values than a particular set of procedures. These examples of misdirections, some serious and malicious, some amusing and trivial, all point to a more fundamental malaise, namely that CSR, as it has been taught and practiced over the last 50 years, is in deep crisis. If you're a cynic, you might say that CSR has proved itself to be a highly effective tool in the age of marketing. If you're a little more sympathetic, like me, you might simply conclude that CSR has failed. At worst, it might be seen as a distraction. At best, an inadequate catalyst for positive changes that it claims to want to bring about in the world. Underlying the crisis in CSR, is what I call the three curses of CSR 1.0.